1: Welcome to River Cafe Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios.
2: I'm sorry, I I think I'm going to sneeze.
3: This is River Cafe Table 4.
2: I always manage (laughs) to sneeze, like on telephone
3: calls. With me, Ruthie Rogers.
2: I don't think I've ever sneezed on a podcast.
3: On River Cafe Table 4, I talk to friends who know the River Cafe well about food, the food they cook, The food they eat, the food of their memories.
2: You know what? I feel it receding.
3: Oh, no, I wanted to hear Paul McCartney sneeze. That would have been good.
2: Don't worry, it may come. And when it comes, I can do
3: up to nine, I warn you. For me, Paul is not just a great musician, but a great lover of food. And one of my favourite possessions is a photograph that Paul recently sent me, of him and his grandson, with a plate of tomato pasta they had just cooked. They were both so proud.
2: (laughs) Cooking in Liverpool, in my working class family, was very much how everyone else ate. So there was not much variety. And it was only when I came down to London, when the Beatles came down here to make records and eventually to live down here, that you would go to fine restaurants and try and, you know, navigate your way through the menu. The eating was pretty much fuel until I got down to London. I mean, for instance, I hated wine
0: Did you? because
2: well, we never had it. I mean, the yeah. nearest we came to alcoholic beverages was when we were a little older on a Sunday with the Sunday lunch. We would yeah. have a glass of cider. That was it. But whenever I tasted wine, I hated it. John and I hitchhiked to Paris. He got given a fabulous birthday present by his rich relatives in Scotland, and one of them gave him £100 for his birthday. You know, I mean, I still think that's a reasonable gift.
3: It's very reasonable.
2: You know, 100 quid, I'll have it. Anyway, so we hitchhiked to Paris, and then we used the money to get food and stuff, and we thought, oh, we've got to have a wine experience, we're in France, you know, so we went into a cafe, corner cafe, and we sort of sidled up to the bar and said, «De ver, van ordinaire, s'il vous
3: plaît.» <laughs> Thank you.
2: And she gave us two glasses of red wine, and we took a sip and thought, «Oh, that is terrible!» it's like vinegar. (laughs) God, I don't know what the fuss is about. All these people going on about wine, they're crazy, we're sane. So we never liked wine till we got down to London. And the first time I ever remember really liking wine, it was with George Martin. My girlfriend at the time was Jane Asher. Mm -hmm. And Jane and I went out with George and his wife, Judy. And we went to a little restaurant in Charlotte Street called L'Etoile.
3: Oh, I know L'Etoile. You probably yeah, know that. I remember that. Yeah.
2: yeah. I was treating. So the waiter, the wine waiter, Sommelier, came up to me and said, would you like a wine, sir? He leaned yeah. in, all very intimate. And I sort of equally whispering, I said, I'd like you to recommend something. I don't know much about wine. He said, oh, yes, sir. Thank you very much. Leave it to me. And then he brought back a bottle of Louis Latour's Corton Grancy, 1959. And I took a taste of it. Oh, it was like velvet. Was it? And I thought, now I get it. And I see why people go crazy about wine. And it was funny because years after that, I thought, okay, Corton Grancy, 1959, that's the wine I've got to order. And then years later, I thought it was not quite as good as (laughs) the one I had. And I realized that I was now ordering the 59, and this was now 10, 20 years later, whereas he was serving it at five years.
3: Yeah,
2: Took a little while for that
3: penny to drop. This is River Cafe Table 4. In each episode, my guest reads a recipe they've chosen from one of our cookbooks. And this is the recipe
2: for roast aubergine. It's the Americans call eggplant, for any Americans listening. Okay, so you take two aubergines cut into two centimeter thick slices, eight ripe plum tomatoes cut in half, then 100 grams of parmesan grated, two tablespoons of basil leaves torn into small pieces, extra virgin olive oil. You place the aubergine in a colander and sprinkle with sea salt. Leave for half an hour and pat dry. Preheat the oven to 200 degrees Celsius. Squeeze the juice from the tomatoes and chop into small pieces. Place the tomatoes in a bowl, season well with salt and pepper, and toss with a tablespoonful of olive oil. Then stir in the parmesan and basil. Brush an ovenproof dish with olive oil, place the aubergine slices on the dish, brush with olive oil and season. Bake for 15 minutes, then turn them over and spoon the tomato mixture on top. Return to the oven for five minutes. Serve warm or they're also delicious at room temperature.
3: Thank you, beautiful. Why did you
2: choose this recipe? It's just one of my favorite dishes. Being vegetarian, in some restaurants, there's limited options. Not in the River Cafe, mm-hmm. but you know, certain restaurants, it's a bit limited, but they often have an eggplant or aubergine parmesan. Mm. So I will go for that. And I love it. And I eat it at home. It's just a great dish. It's comforting. Mm.
3: When you were growing up, were there a lot of varied vegetables? Did you come across? Are we going to call them eggplant in this uh, conversation we week? So many words, aren't there, yeah. for this vegetable. Yeah. I remember when I first came to London, I went into a greengrocer and I asked for eggplant and he brought me out eggs. <laughs> and then I said, no, I don't want eggs. And he brought me out a plant, you know. <laughs> and then I realized that they called them by the French name aubergines. Right. And then in Italian, it's melanzana. How do you want to refer to them? Let's
2: do aubergine because that's what I'm Let's do aubergine.
3: Okay. So tell me about aubergines in Liverpool.
2: You didn't get them. I've never heard of them till I came down to London. Really? Yeah. I mean, vegetables would be potatoes, yeah. carrots, onion, and then you would get broad beans, which we call butter beans. Mm-hmm. I like them to this day. Mm. I like a nice butter bean soup. So, yeah, but it was very limited, and that would be with a piece of meat. It was a pretty bland menu
3: that mm. we had. Who did the cooking in your house? My mum. Tell me about your mum. Did she like cooking, do you think, or did she see it as a duty to do? Was she? Did she have a job? She
2: did. She was a nurse, so she worked full on. Then she became a sister on the ward, and then eventually she became a midwife. Huh. So she was hardworking. I think she enjoyed cooking, but I'm sure there was a little bit of Providing for your family in there, you know, mm. because in those days there was no question about it really. It was the woman's role. Mm. I would do a little bit myself sometimes because my mum unfortunately died when I was 14. So there was my dad and me and my younger brother left to look after ourselves. Mm. Sometimes I'd get home from school before my dad would from work. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to knock up a little bit of a meal. I became very good at mashed potatoes. Ah,
3: oh, what was your technique, do you remember?
2: Yeah, I mean these days it's probably like over the top and would need to be a little bit healtherized. <laughs> but then I would mash them, normally with a fork. Uh-huh. We didn't have many cooking implements. I mashed them up till I got all the lumps out and I was mm. very mm. keen on that. Then I would pile in a lot of butter.
3: Yeah, delicious. of yeah. butter. Uh, we love <laughs> uh, butter. Oh <laughs> yeah, and a little
2: bit of milk. Yeah, and then whip that little sucker up. And then sometimes, if I was trying to be exotic, I'd put some finely chopped onions, raw, ah. in it, which is kind of nice. Well,
3: I'd say that that is a very sophisticated way of. I mean, that is. We always say that mashed potatoes in France are really butter with potatoes, you know. Did your mother teach you how to do that, or was it instinctive? I think
2: I probably just watched her do it, so I would make that, and then my dad would leave either some sausages or chops to go with it. That was basically it, but, yeah, you know, my mum was a proper cook. The only time I really couldn't eat what she had cooked and what she'd offered was on the table, on a plate. There was a tongue...
3: Oh, yeah. And I did
2: not like the look of this bloody great cow's tongue. I was not persuaded to eat that, I'm afraid.
3: When you said that your dad would leave you the sausages or the pork, so he would do the shopping, did he have a night job? Would he come home for dinner? No, he
2: was a cotton salesman, so he worked just during the day. He would leave roughly the same time as we left for school. So he would sell cotton. It came in from the port, and then he would sell that on to the mills which were behind Liverpool in Lancashire. That was a big industry at the time. To this day, I know how to take the staple of some raw cotton.
3: Do you? How do you do that? What, yeah. what do
2: you do? You've got a piece of cotton that's, you know, just come off the bush and been packed. And you take it between your thumbs and you tease it
0: mm-hmm. and
2: you keep teasing it till you all you're left with is the one bit that won't tease off. Mm. That thing that's left, the thread that's left, is called the staple, and you judge the quality of the cotton on the length of that staple.
3: That's rather beautiful. What year would this have been? What years are we
2: talking about? Mid 50s.
3: This show is sponsored by Better Help. Help helps is a maxim I believe in. We all carry around stress and hardship and when we keep it inside, it starts to chip away. Therapy is a safe place, and therapy is for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com dot com slash Ruthie today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H E L P dot com slash Ruthie. BetterHelp.com slash Ruthie
1: I'm Katia Adler, host of the Global Story. Over the last twenty-five years I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: So was coming to London a huge exposure to food and to restaurants and going out?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, in Liverpool... There weren't, to my knowledge, any real sort of fine restaurants. You had Mm. great Chinese food, great Indian food, but the English cooking was normally done best at home. Yes. You know, you had an auntie or somebody who was like really, made a great stew. In Liverpool, there's a stew that's called Scouse. What's that? It's like an Irish stew, Mm. sort of everything in. And then years later, when Linda and I became vegetarian, we went up. And my auntie was very nice, very kind, and she made scouse without the meat, which Liverpoolians call blind scouse.
3: <laughs> Thank you. I'm sure you've written and talked in, about this, but how did the, the decision... By the two of you, and, and Mary said to me, you, you must remember that my father and my mother decided this together. It wasn't my mother saying That's true, we yeah. will be vegetarians, that it was a joint decision, which is, now everybody, I have to say, is thinking about the environment. Yeah. All my children and grandchildren are either yeah. not eating meat or fish at thank, all. Or well, thank less.
2: goodness they're thinking about the environment.
3: Exactly. But yeah. what were you thinking about then? Well, what made you
2: do that? What it, what it was, was we were on the farm, In Scotland, we had a farm in a place called Campbelltown, which is Uh south down the Argyle Peninsula, south of Glasgow. So we spent quite a bit of time there. The Beatles' breakup got a bit heavy in the business scene and you just couldn't deal with it. So we decided to just elope. Even though we were married, we just escaped there. And it was just a sheep farm. We were looking out of the kitchen window one day... And there were lambs. It was lambing season early in spring. And the lambs were gambling around, so full of life. And it was like, Mm. wow, this is really cool. And I always say that what they seemed like they were doing, there'd be about 20 of them. They'd start at one end of the field. And then it'd be as if someone said, let's go. And they'd all go and run to the other side of the field. Let's go back. So they... So they were just running up and down gambling and jumping and everything. We're going, isn't this cute and great? Mm. Then we suddenly realized we were eating leg of lamb. So that was when the penny dropped and it was like,
3: oh, oh,
2: leg of lamb, leg of lamb. Then it was just, we said, you know what? Should we try and not eat meat? Should we try and go veggie? And in those Mm. days, of course, it was actually difficult. But we decided that we'd make it a challenge. It just became a fun challenge. Okay, what do you do? yeah, so we gradually begun filling the hole in the middle of the plate we 'd keep everything else, yeah. and then we'd just work on things to take the place of where the meat had been and it was quite funny actually because at Christmas, you know I'd always loved the role which I had been given in the family of carving the turkey, and Linda did cook the turkey great, she was really good at yeah. that. So suddenly here we were without anything for me to carve. So she had the brilliant idea of making a macaroni cheese so that we knew it would taste good. And then she let it cool and go solid. And then we put it in the fridge overnight. (laughs) And then the next day I had this big block that I could carve into turkey-sized portions. So it was like that. It actually became very interesting to work out how to do it because nobody else was bothering you know I remember going with Linda's father one night to Claridge's and thinking oh great you know they're going to know how to do it we said well vegetarian can you make some suggestions the waiter gave us a very sniffy look and said anyway he came back with a plate of vegetables steamed yeah that was the limit of his imagination but you know things started to change really quickly
3: but I think, Paul, without interrupting you, that you have to take credit for that change. Linda have to take credit for that change because you, you didn't just personally become vegetarian, but you kind of told the world about what it was like and how it was like, especially, you know, with her books and, yeah. and her vision created a place. I'll tell you a story. Do you remember there was that restaurant called Cranks? Yeah, It was like the only vegetarian restaurant in London, I think. It was, and I
2: thought it was very cool the way they called it, cranks.
3: And I once went there with Richard the first days that I met him, and I was so happy to see him, and I kept kissing him and having my arms around him, and I saw a woman staring at us and getting very annoyed, and so, of course, I just did it more. Uh And she came over to the table and she said, I think that what you've been doing is appalling, but that you should be doing it in a vegetarian restaurant makes it worse. (laughs) And it was somehow the idea that you couldn't be sexy and have vegetables. So I I think you could say that you and Linda made vegetables sexy and rock and roll. It was something very important. That is
2: funny, though, isn't it? It used to come with the territory that if people were veggie, they were cranks, and therefore they were boring. And so it gave this image of the whole thing being really boring. The people are boring, there's no kissing allowed. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but that soon left the arena.
3: Were you unique in the group of musicians and the other people that were performing it in the 60s? Did they have the same explosion of food and joy of food, or do you think you were kind of more passionate about it? I
2: don't know, you know, I think a lot of them did, a lot of them didn't. Some people remained traditional eaters. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there are a couple of people these days who I know who were from those times who just want English cooking. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like they want life to stay exactly the same as it mm-hmm. was. And I get it, you know, they kind of split into two groups, I suppose. You know, the people who weren't bothered with all that rubbishy mm-hmm. wine and fine food. They probably still thought it tastes like vinegar.
3: <laughs> but when you traveled, when you were on tour and you were suddenly traveling in other countries, do you remember being in Japan or China or an exotic place and being confronted with food that you'd never seen before, never? Mm. Japan
2: mainly. I mean, I haven't actually been to China, mm. but Japan was quite an experience. I like Japanese food. These days, because I'm vegetarian, a lot of it's a bit fishy for me, but you can work your way around it. I enjoy Japanese cuisine. I like sort of Asian fusion. It didn't really mean that we would have it at home. It was more when you went to the country, you'd enjoy the food of that particular country.
0: So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. And you've just done
3: a book, haven't you? Tell me about Linda McCartney's Family Kitchen.
2: Yeah, we wanted to take a lot of her cooking ideas and bring them more up to date with the way people tend to eat now. It's vegetarian, but we Mm -hmm. decided to actually make it vegan. Vegetarian is so near to vegan anyway. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're only talking Mm -hmm. about cheese Mm -hmm. and dairy products, Mm -hmm. you know, that you've got so many substitutes for those these days. So, yeah, we just wanted to get some really tasty, easy-to-make dishes that would be good for a family. Because I think if you say to people, well, I'm vegetarian, mm. these days actually is not so shocking. But it used mm-hmm. to be people say, oh, if you come to dinner, what can I do? Yeah. What, what can I give you? you know. Yeah. So that was originally why Linda got together a cookbook. So uh, it's nice to have come through it really. You know, it puts a perspective on it for us that it was the kind of thing where you're getting told off for kissing in a restaurant. And nowadays it's just the opposite. Yeah, You know, I'll tell you, a restaurant I like a lot is ABCV.
3: In New York, yeah.
2: ABC is great. I forget the guy's name, Jean-Pierre. It was
3: John George, John George. John George,
2: that's it, yeah. And he made ABC, which is good. But ABCV is all veggie and Hmm. so good. I always come out of there having eaten too much. And the other thing I like is that the waiters, they're all very invested in the idea. Mm-hmm. And it, it really is kind of quite thrilling, you know, and I sort of transport myself through time back to the plate of veg of Claridge's, through mm. to modern day. Exactly.
3: I interviewed Al Gore. And again, like you, not a musician, but a very good politician and a very good environmentalist. Mm. And, you know, it's hard to break the connection between what we are what our politics are, what our view on sustainability and mm. how we vote, how we think, how we mm. judge and how we eat. You know, that is, it's all connected now, isn't it? Mm. And I think that's so interesting. You have a farm. Al Gore has made his farm. He inherited it in Tennessee and he's made it completely sustainable and organic and the, changed the soil. Tell us about your farm.
2: Yeah, well, ours is organic. Went organic, what, over 20 years ago. And when I first bought the farm, there were some fields that my farm guys would say, well, there's no worms in these fields. There's no life. Mm -hmm. Because basically all you did was you put on pesticides and then you put a fertilizer in. So I thought, okay, there's a challenge. You know, we're going to go organic. So I talked to the Soil Association, who were very good and kind of came and gave us some clues. And we went... Organic and the local farmers would say, Oh, you know, you're stupid. What are you doing there? You know, it's no use. But of course, nowadays they get it and they think, Oh, it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we change the soil. We grow crops like I like doing things like spelt wheat just because it's a little bit different. Rye, we grow peas. Actually, we're just getting into growing hemp. Hmm. You know, the funny thing is with government regulations, you've got to keep it where people can't see it. Oh, really? Yeah, Why you get all the kids coming in and robbing it. I
3: see. <laughs> <laughs> you've left something else out because Stella told me that you're making your own ale.
2: Yeah, we do. Through the years, I would hear like a neighbour would be selling some land that was next door to ours. So I went to this one... And I said, oh, I hear you're selling that hop garden there. And he said, yeah, you know, anyway, so long story short, I've I've got it. And then I thought, well, I've got to start doing hops. You know, I've got to bring it back. Mm -hmm. Because the region we're in, in Sussex, was a very big hop growing area. So Mm -hmm. uh, I I went to a local brewer who's just in the village near us. And I said, could you make some beer for me? And so I said, I'll grow the hops. Yeah. And you put it all together and... Organic, it must be organic. And so he did. And then we were looking for a name for the beer. And, you know, these artisan beers, they've got to have crazy names. So I was riding with Linda
0: mm-hmm.
2: one day through our woods and she was behind me. And I stopped and I said, You're not going to believe what you're going to see now. She said, What? I said, Look. And she caught up with me. And it was a stinkhorn. I don't know if you know what a stinkhorn is.
3: I have no idea what a stinkhorn is. It's a no.
2: fungus that is white and erect and very phallic. <laughs> I mean, it looks like an erect penis. And then beside it, which is even better, there was another one which was like a limp penis. <laughs> so you got this erect thing, and, I, and I'm saying, I'm saying, when well, I tell people this, I say, don't blame me. This is nature. It's not me being dirty. So that's what RB is called, Old Stinkhorn.
3: Oh, so can we get it? You
2: can. I'll put you on the list. I send it to friends. I just send it to friends.
3: Can we have it in the River Cafe? That would be great. Well, very...
2: we don't produce that many. It's more a personal one. I'll send you a six-pack.
3: Okay, I'm waiting for it. The connection of between you and myself, as I said, was music. It was is food. It was, you know, when on my Desert Island discs I played I Will. Uh-huh sung, do you remember I was sung by Garrison Kellyar and you came in and said you'd never heard that version and we yeah. played it, at the memorial for our son who yes. died age 27. I, I, and that, that
2: was the first time I heard of your love of that song yeah. which it was so, very, very lovely to imagine it at a memorial it was yeah. very poignant.
3: It was very beautiful and I think that if you know for me and for Richard and our family that was comfort and it was connection and so I guess my last question to you is if food is something you do politically by what you choose to eat, if it's socially what you sit down with your friends and eat, it's also comfort, isn't it? There is food yeah. that is comfort that we go to that makes us feel better. What, for my last question, would be, Sir Paul McCartney, your comfort food?
2: Well, I like a quesadilla mm. or a quesadilla. It's uh, Why? it is a comfort food. It's like a pizza turned inside out I love it in fact I think I'm having it tonight all right Ruthie thanks a lot I love you Don. love you too I hope I was sensible enough
3: you were wonderful you are wonderful I'll see you soon when are you coming in
2: as soon as I can
3: okay come on we're waiting for you okay <laughs> to visit the online shop of the River Cafe go to shoptherivercafe.co.uk
1: River Cafe Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomized Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
3: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp.
0: Zumo Play.